0: Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends. I am your host, Jason Day. And today we have an incredible episode here on the Church Leaders Podcast. This week, Dr. N.T. Wright and I enjoyed an insightful conversation. Tom Wright has served as the Bishop of Durham, among other pastoral roles. And was recently appointed as Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. Now this comes after serving for several years as research professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at St. Andrews in Scotland. Tom is a prolific writer, having written over eighty books for both academia and laity, including his latest, The New Testament in its world. Now, in this episode, Tom and I discuss the dangers for us as preachers and teachers when we do not make the time to adequately understand the New Testament writings and the culture in which they were written. Tom shares what he believes pastors today are missing most from the New Testament and how we can best assess issues such as women in church leadership by a careful reading of scripture within its world. Now, I always appreciate speaking with Tom, and today proved to be another insightful chat. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Dr. N.T. Wright. Tom, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's so good to have you back with us.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Now, Tom, you have dedicated your life to what I think is really a beautiful balance of deep scholarly work and, and meaningful pastoral ministry, uh, you've written over 80 books, and many of those are are rich academic explorations of theological and biblical topics. And then you've written so many amazing books that are really like accessible to those who you know just regular people, those who um, haven't gone to seminary or don't, as you do, you know, do their morning devotions reading the original Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. Right? Oftentimes, it seems that pastors gravitate. Uh, to one of the extremes, either they like to go really, really deep, or they, they might keep it kind of really rather light. Can you share with us your thoughts on how we as ministry leaders, as pastors, how can we find that that healthy balance that honors Jesus, honors Scripture, and yet is effective in connecting with, you know, people in the 21st century?
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's rather like uh, asking somebody in a marriage guidance things uh, things sort of so how, how can you be the ideal husband or the ideal wife, <laughs> right. and, and, and the answer is we're, we're all different and we all have different lessons to learn and I I would say that up front because I think a lot of people feel guilty that there are some things which maybe when they were called into ministry they thought they would be doing and they either don't seem to be very good at it or they don't get the opportunity to do it and I really want to say um, that that we all have our particular gifts and uh, we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that there are some gifts that we might have thought we were going to be given in ministry or whatever which we don't have Um, and I mean I, I think of sort of extreme examples of people who served God with everything that they've got in a very, uh, to to, to what looks like to most of us, a very oblique and obscure way. I think of Alexander Cruden, who did the Great Concordance um, a couple hundred years ago, and, and he was... We would today say he was really far out on a spectrum. He was was quite an unbalanced individual, but he needed to be like that for the very odd job that God had for him, which Mm. was producing by hand a concordance which served the church amazingly well for a very long time. And I, I possess my grandfather's copy of Cruden's Concordance, and it was a great help before all the modern computerized stuff came. So I really wanna say, if somebody has an academic bent or a bent for lexicography or, or, or um, concordances, whatever it is, then good, God needs those skills as well. And likewise, if somebody has the real pastoral ability to spend hours working with, say, children in need or at risk or families that are in trouble, that, that, that will eat you up in in terms of time and mental energy, and you won't have a lot of time left, um, not just for writing concordances but for studying academically and that's fine. God needs those gifts. but there are some of us who find ourselves kind of in the middle and we like doing this and we like doing that, and we like holding them together and It seems to me that there are in every generation God seems to call some people to do this odd business of being both and people now, having said that, that means that, of course, if you find that you're mostly concentrating on uh, serious academic reading and writing of the New Testament, you need to be sure that you are working in a team with people who will balance that out with their pastoral and, and so on gifts, and vice versa. That uh, A church cannot survive on brilliant pastoral care alone. Churches these days more than ever need clear, well-researched, well-thought-out teaching and people need to be set aside to be able to do that, not to neglect the pastoral office, but but to, to, to do the necessary thinking, because you know, a lot of people in our congregation are very thoughtful, mm-hmm. and they want answers to the questions which are being asked in the world around. Right. And if the church doesn't give them answers or help them think about those answers, then it will shrug its shoulders and assume that the church doesn't care about these things. And the answer is we do, but so we need balanced, well-resourced teams in churches so that we can be sure that we cover the bases. And in some cases, uh, as in my own, I've been very fortunate to be able to blend the academic and the pastoral. It's not been easy. It's quite demanding. But um, it seems to me just the odd personality that I have, <laughs> seemed, it, it seemed to work. And, and, you know, at my great age, I could sort of look back and say, yeah, that seems to have been the case.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. It's super encouraging. Now, Tom, you've just released a book that pulls together kind of a lifetime of scholarship and study for you. It's entitled The New Testament in Its World, and, and it's yeah. spectacular. I, I, it's funny. I received an advanced reader's copy, and I was really intrigued. Um, pretty much have read everything you've, you've written, or at least have tried to. Then the final edition showed up on my desk. And I was honestly blown away. And so, people who haven't yet seen this book—it's nearly 900 pages, maybe over 900 pages. You know, I've been getting my daily workout simply by lifting the book off my desk. <laughs> yes, you know,
1: quite. it is quite a <laughs> chunky volume. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, such a helpful resource. It's you know not only all of your great scholarly insight, but you know, it's got maps and illustrations, charts. You know that that yes. break down the u- uniqueness of each gospel. I mean, so many. Um, you know, just great great things, fantastic resource. Now, in this book, Tom, you've pulled together three areas of study. You've you've pulled together history, literature, and theology. And so, I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about what, what are the dangers when we do not seek to include an examination of history and literature alongside of our theology?
1: yeah the the danger is that we assume that the first century writers were Centrally interested in the topics which centrally interest us mm-hmm. and in the same way, and that they use similar language and vocabulary to address them. And this has been shown again and again to be distorting. I mean, my, my, my favorite example from way back is when Martin Luther made the point five centuries ago that the old Latin translation of the New Testament had Jesus in his initial proclamation saying, um, Pinitentium agri, which means do penance. Instead of repent. And now, um, if you're a medieval Latinist, then Pinitentium Magari may be the right translation for you for metanoite, the Greek thing. But Martin Luther pointed out that that was being heard in terms of what you have to do is go and say five Hail Marys or something like that, and that's what Jesus wanted you to do. Whereas metanoite really means a change of heart, a change of, of your whole inner self and that that's what Jesus was challenging us to um, but then of course I want to go further than Luther went because in the first century the word metanoite wasn't just a religious or personal spiritual word it was used in terms of um, what we would call socio-political orientation it meant change your direction of travel turn around and go back the other way um, or, or come this way instead of the way you're going and so um, a little bit of history and all lexicography is basically a branch of history. A little bit of history will then challenge the easy assumptions that we would otherwise make. And the same is true with Paul's big words like um, pistis, faith, uh, or dicaizune, righteousness, that in Paul's world, Pistis, faith, what we translate as faith, meant faithfulness or reliability or trustworthiness or loyalty. And there wasn't a Chinese wall between those different meanings. And when you realize actually, and this is again a historical insight, um, how communities worked in the first century, communities worked by mutual trust and respect and so on. And there's a lot of Greek and Roman literature which goes on about that. And Paul is employing all of that as well as how having the central thing of faith, meaning that believing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So that history actually enables us to avoid an unwarranted shrinking of meaning Simply, in order to address the things which we have found important. And that again and again reminds us that we in the modern West have actually shrunk the gospel into being Mm. a message simply about how I get to heaven, uh, rather than a message about how God and God's life and God's Son and God's Spirit come to earth to dwell with us and to transform earth so that it becomes new heavens and new earth, which is what Jesus taught us to pray for. So, all of that's going on when we look at the history. And if we simply started with theology, as in the the theological questions we're interested in, we would miss out on all of that.
0: Yeah, that's that's rich. And I guess, Tom, what do you see as, you know, contemporary pastors, theologians, ministry leaders, what do you see is, you know, they're kind of missing the most— when it comes to understanding the New Testament? I
1: think one of the main things is that we have lived in the West, and this is true even in Britain where we do have officially an established church, but it's certainly true in the United States. We have lived for a long time with a very strong church-state split Now, the the idea of the state is a modern idea, and you you can't just translate that straight back into the ancient world. But the early Christian communities were what we would call political communities. That is to say they formed total communities of a kind of egalitarian, mutually supportive, um, outward-facing, worship-directed character um, that, that were perceived as socially subversive in their world because nobody else was going around living as family across ethnic lines gender lines class lines etc this was an amazing social experiment and okay that's there in the book of acts but most modern christians just miss that because they assume that church means that place they go to on sundays or whatever which actually may be quite homogenous and may not be um living out the life of the mutually supportive family in the way that the early Christians kind of took for granted. Um, and so it's when we look, um, w- when we take our modern um, spectacles off and look with first century eyes, then we realize that the gospel was always meant to generate a totality of communities which would be showing the rest of the world what a new way of being human actually looked like and this isn't just a new ethic you know a few rules that you ought now to be behaving um be following differently and be behaving differently. though it obviously includes ethics it includes this entire communal way of life and in particular And I think we regularly miss out on this. We have been sort of conned into thinking that Christianity is a religion in the modern sense of religion, which is what people do with their solitude and their spirituality. Whereas in the first century, a religion was something that embraced everything. It was about civic life. It was about community life. It was about uh, trade and marriage and travel and so on. Everything was involved with the gods and the Christians who believed in the one God and in Jesus, his son knew that this one God was concerned with every aspect of life, not just their spirituality, their prayers, and their possible um, eschatological future. So I think we we, we have sh- we have allowed the post-Enlightenment secular world to shrink our vision of what Christianity itself is, and we've gone along with that. And the New Testament read historically can really joggle us out of that and remind us what's actually going on.
0: Yeah, that, that's good. And it, it's it's wonderful whenever we um, – I, I think one of the challenges we have is we often take Scripture, and we just want to immediately apply it to the world in which we live. Yep. You're right. You know I mean? yep. and, we, and we rush to that. And we don't yep. slow yep. down to look at what was happening in you know, first-century Eastern Mediterranean life. You know, exactly. What did exactly. that mean?
1: So yeah. let, uh, and and the thing uh-huh. is the, the, you know God is not um hindered by our ignorances it's perfectly possible for the holy spirit to speak to the most naive reader through a text which may not be fully understood that it doesn't mean you don't have to have a phd in early jewish history in order to get God speaking to you through the New Testament, but for teachers in the church, it's absolutely vital that we constantly go back to refresh our sense of what was actually going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's why I love this book because you, you know, you're talking about you know the New Testament, and I, I even love the title of it. When I first saw the title, I was like, "That's fantastic!" Because it's the New Testament. In its world. You know I mean? It's like, yeah, it's not yeah. and its world. It's, you know, it's, yep, it's talking yep. about how the New Testament, you know, lived and breathed and and came together within yep. Yep. The, the world it, it landed in. So th- there are lots of issues. I mean, it's, it's no question that there's plenty of issues within the church that different um, uh, factions within the church interpret differently, right? They go to the New Testament, they read this, and they say, this is what this means. Um yep. Uh, and, you know, here in North America, uh, even even recently, um, there have been some issues that have really bubbled up. And, of course, this is nothing new, but in the age of social media, instant access to yep. so many ministry leaders, you know, it seems these issues have greater visibility, right? And um, yep. we, we're, we're going through this thing here in North America uh, around women in ministry leadership. And, you know, people, you know, taking it one direction, people taking it the other direction. Everyone's going back to Scripture to support, you know, their belief, Uh, Tom, how how do we take an issue like this, and how do we honestly reflect on the New Testament, you know, to best understand how to interpret that issue that we're wrestling with today?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I always go back to two passages in particular, which are John 20 and Romans 16. In John 20, Jesus is raised from the dead, and the first person who is commissioned by Jesus to tell other people the good news that he's been raised from the dead and that he is ascending to the Father, he is the Lord of the world, the first person to be commissioned to do this is Mary Magdalene. Now, that announcement, that the crucified Jesus has been raised and is Lord, that is the foundation of all christian ministry that that that's all christian ministry starts from there and must always include that right and when in john twenty jesus gives that role to mary i think that is almost as huge a revolution as the resurrection itself um because he could have said to mary please go and get peter because i've got a really urgent job for him and i've been preparing him for this job and it's got to be peter he doesn't he says to mary you go and tell my brothers So that's the first thing. The second thing is that in Romans 16, Paul says, uh, let me recommend to you or commend to you Phoebe, who is bringing this letter um, Paul has written the letter to the Romans one of the greatest pieces of writing ever in the history of the church or the world and he's he's writing it in the eastern port of Corinth this place called Kenchrei. um sadly the, the the place where the church met has there's been a landslip and it's underwater now I once went, went swimming down there and, and discovered it anyway <laughs> Phoebe was a deacon in the church in Kenree and she was obviously an independent business businesswoman. She was traveling to Rome on business, and Paul gave her the letter to read out to the Roman churches. Now, what we know from the the normal practice of people reading out significant letters in the ancient world is that the person who took the letter would be the person who would likely read it out and particularly they would be the person who would most likely explain it so it's highly likely you can't prove this but it's highly likely and Paul must have known that this was uh, at least a strong possibility that the first person ever to expound Paul's letter to the Romans was a Christian businesswoman from the eastern port of Corinth. Now with those two, Mary Magdalene and Phoebe, I think, you know, what's not to like? Here is a very, very solid scriptural basis for saying, right from the start, Jesus and Paul seem not only very comfortable with women as preachers, as teachers, but actually positively to commend that and to set that up. Paul could easily have chosen some man to do that job. Mm. Um, But he didn't. So that I then read 1 Timothy 2, which is obviously an important passage, in the light of those and similar passages in the Gospels and elsewhere, Gospels and Epistles. And actually, Romans 16 has a lot of female um, co-workers of Paul who are greeted and so on, and including uh, Junior, who is an apostle. and First uh, 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 Timothy 2 has some very difficult language, which I and others have wrestled with, and I've written that up in various places in articles and in my little commentary on the pastoral epistles, and I think it's quite wrong to take one particular reading of 1 Timothy 2 and allow that to override what is coming through in those other great passages, which seem to me very, very clear. Now, of course, it's open to anyone to disagree with that, but this is... how I would approach it. Let's read the large passages, the big stories, and see what's going on. And then I think it does come quite clear.
0: Yeah, I think that's good, because when we we allow all of Scripture to inform our reading, as opposed to just what's right in front of our eyes at that time, it, it helps us to see the the stream yeah. of the story yeah. right
1: absolutely and I, let, let me just add that um, th- that there 's a real danger here because what I just said could be heard by some suspicious minds as oh this is just anti-right going with the flow of the culture um, so we're all feminists now so we've all got to um, bow down to this new wave of modern Western culture and I want to say it's absolutely nothing to do with that. There are many many issues on which I will firmly refuse to bow down to the sway of Western culture. It just so happens that on this particular issue there would be a convergence between what some aspects of feminism would say and what new testament actually says
0: yeah that's good that's a great clarification and 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 tom talk to me a little bit about how understanding the um history and the culture of of the first century informs um kind of the radical uh you know idea that women were so involved in in the ministry in those ways yeah I, i mean you can see it in First Corinthians because
1: Paul is very adamant in chapter 11, which is a difficult chapter, I admit, but he's very adamant that when women are leading in worship, they should look like women and not look like imitation men. And the fact that he is concerned about them being recognized as women, you know, the whole bit about the headgear and so on, shows that A, he does want them to be leading in worship, and B, he wants it to be clear that they are doing so as women. Now, the, the argumentation there is, quite tricky and I've read many commentaries on that and uh, uh, I don't think there's any consensus on how Paul's argument actually works if and when I get to meet Paul that's one of the first passages I'm going to ask him about <laughs> uh, but 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 I think I think that is that is quite clear but um uh, in in Paul's world Um, There were various different social movements going on at the time, and the usual idea that women were kept down in the ancient world, and it's only recently that feminism has brought them back up, is quite wrong. There were lots of independent women in Paul's world, and and that was was something Paul worked with, and we see him using some of those skills. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the larger culture, we, we basically need to be informed about it. Are, I mean, just as an example, one of the things I always tell my students is that in the ancient world, there is no such thing as private life. You know, I'm sitting in a hotel room at the moment talking to you on the phone. As far as I know, this phone isn't bugged and nobody other than you and me and the people you choose to play this podcast to will ever hear what I'm saying in the ancient world. Pretty well everything you said would be heard by more people than the person you were just talking to, unless you were very clever and secretive and managed to whisper it in their ear when no one else was around. They had houses very close together, thin walls, streets where everybody knew one, their neighbor's business. The only people who had private life were the very rich and the very wealthy uh, and, and sorry, and the very aristocratic um, and uh, uh, this actually colors everything to do with what it meant to be an early Christian that if you didn't join in the processions to go and worship the local gods, everybody, your neighbors the places where you shopped, your friends, everybody would know that you weren't doing your civic duty and they would say, why is this? And You say, well because we follow Jesus and, and the God we know in and through Jesus is the only God and we're not going to worship any others and this would be scandalous and appalling and back to the women issue. If it was a woman who had become a Christian, and she chose not to do the local religious stuff, then her husband, if he hadn't converted, might well be extremely cross, he might divorce her. Um, and likewise, if, if, if it was the husband who converted, the wife might be very cross. So the, we, we need to think our way back into the realities of first century life. And when we do that, we, it makes us ask ourselves, should make us ask ourselves, so what are the similar cultural pressures that we face? What is it that we as Christians ought not to be doing, that everyone out on the street is doing, that will make our friends and neighbors say, what on earth is that all about? And those are very real questions, pastorally and evangelistically, which we ought to be addressing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, One of the things that you touch on in in the book is you talk about how we need to take into consideration uh, when we're when we're looking at scripture passages or even books of of the New Testament, uh, who the writer is and then who the audience is. Absolutely. Can you Absolutely. talk to us a little bit about um, how we how we kind of consider those things and the importance of that?
1: Well, yes, um, I mean, of course, quite a lot of the New Testament we can't be absolutely sure who the intended audience is. People used to think that the four Gospels were just written in and for specific communities, and there's been a, a bit of a rebellion against that now, and my friend and colleague Richard Borkham in Cambridge wrote um, a book called "The Gospels for All Christians," and trying to argue, I think quite successfully that each of the four gospels was written in order to be disseminated right across the known Christian. Christian world. So we have to be a little bit careful about saying, well, this has this audience and that has that audience. But obviously you can see this with, say, Paul's letters, that Paul is writing the letter to the Galatians in order to say to people who want to get circumcised and become basically uh, part of the Jewish community to say, don't do that because God has done the new thing in Jesus the Messiah. And his cross and resurrection have launched a a whole new way of being. And if you get circumcised, you're basically saying that uh, Jesus has not done anything new and that we can still continue with the old ways. But then when he writes Romans, he's writing to people who are, as we see in chapter 11, in danger of saying, oh, those Jews, God has got rid of them, and thank goodness for that, and this Christianity thing is now uh, a uh, uh, Gentile-only movement. And Paul is saying, no, you can't say that. They are are God's people. They are the children of Abraham. They must be respected, and you must pray for them and, and all the rest of it. So, Uh, it almost looks like a contradiction until you realize that these are two communities who are facing in quite different ways and so paul using very similar scriptural resources addresses two totally different arguments one to say don't go charging off down this road and the other to say don't go charging off down that road so the more you see the the trouble is again and again in the church people have treated both romans and galatians as if they're simply systematic treatises about how to get saved Mm. and then they They've been puzzled that in the one it looks as if um, Paul is being very opposed to the Jewish law, and in the other one it looks as if he's he's um, he's very in favour of the Jewish law. And the answer is get hold of the um, get hold of the actual context, and then you'll see what's going on.
0: Yeah, and the reason that that that's so good, I think, is so helpful for us as pastors and, and teachers, is that not only is the content that Paul was writing and understanding that content so important but just the the yep. the model that he the sets model. for us right that he yep. understood Absolutely. the audience right and, and and so as as pastors and teachers as ministry leaders that speaks to us and reminds us, hey, we need to understand oh, yes. the audience so we can help uh, position the message, Exactly right?
1: And as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm here in New York City in a hotel room doing some talks on this book to various groups, and uh, I've been saying the New Testament in its world, it's the Jewish world, it's the Roman world, it's the Greek world, it's the world of ancient Mediterranean civilization, but actually our world also belongs to the New Testament, because in Psalm two um, God says to the Messiah, "Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Here we are in the uttermost parts of the earth. these parts of the earth are claimed by the gospel, the gospel is articulated in the New Testament, therefore, the New Testament in its world that includes our world, and we then have the task in the power of the Spirit of thinking and praying our way through the New Testament to say and this is how this lands in our real world, so that studying the real world of the first century is one of the best ways of getting to the point of addressing the message of the New Testament to the real world of today.
0: Yes, yes, that's good. Tom, I, I, I love just, just sitting and chatting with you, and, and we could do this for hours, um, but our, our time yes. is, is uh, coming to a close. But before we leave, um just a couple things. One, Tom, I, I gotta tell you, I have been really enjoying your podcast. Ask NTWrite Anything oh, with Justin. Just fantastic. I mean, I just uh oh, it's it's rich. I mean it's encouraging for me, but then you know it's it's such a great resource in thinking through these questions as you answer them. And Wonderful. and these are questions that that we're faced with in ministry week in and week out, right? So loving that. I've also really enjoyed several of your online courses at ntwriteonline.org. Um David Smith has been doing a fantastic job just you know helping get your teaching out uh, and accessible. Uh, you're heading back to to Oxford, right?
1: Yes. Yes. My wife and I have just moved back to Oxford this last month, and it's been quite hard work because the house where we were living in Scotland is all on one level, um, and the house in Oxford is on three levels with quite steep staircases. (laughs) So for people our age with creaky knees and hips, this is quite a challenge, but we're more or less enjoying
0: it. uh, We'll we'll be praying for those those walking up and down those those stairs. Thank you. Uh, uh, Yeah. Tom, (laughs) tell me, what's next? What what can we be um, looking forward to seeing, hearing, or reading? From you. Well,
1: you you may not have seen, but simultaneously with the book we've been talking about, my Gifford Lectures have just been published by Baylor University Press, and that that is entitled History and Eschatology: Jesus and the Promise of Natural Theology, and that's one of the most exciting projects I've ever. Put my hand to because it moves out from the the world of pure exegesis. Though there's a lot of exegesis in the book, um, to addressing some of the big theological questions of the last 200 years, and uh, that was just enormous fun doing it. And I'm glad it's out now, um, and I'm looking forward to the feedback that I'll get from colleagues in the disciplines. But um, following on from that, I really do want to write something about Christology. A lot of my work has has had a section on Christology or a chapter from like paul 's Christology or whatever. But I would like to do that more full on one of these days. And in Oxford, that may be a good place to do it. The most immediate thing is I have a little book on John, which is nearly ready, um, which is kind of coming from some quirky angles to try to probe and ask some different questions. And I need to see the publisher about that in a couple of weeks time. And, and that'll be coming through soon, I hope. But then after that, I'm doing the commentary on Galatians for one of the new Erdmans series. And uh, again, I've done most of the work for that. So I hope to be able to pull that together sometime in the new year. So there we are.
0: Wow. So <laughs> you're not slowing down any, are you, brother?
1: Well, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm stepping back from my position in St. Andrews. I'm going down to a quarter time. And that's really, that means that the only thing I'm left with there is supervising my four remaining PhD students. So um, I'm not taking on any new doctoral students, though I will still bump into doctoral students around the place and you know, drink coffee with them and discuss their projects. But I'm not actually doing the official work of supervising any new ones. So that, that, and so I am trying to go into semi-retirement, but I've always believed that actually retirement ought to be a gradual process rather than a sudden break.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that, and I'm glad that it's just semi-retirement for you because there's plenty, plenty more that I would love to hear from you. So, um, <laughs> thankful, thankful for you and your influence well, on my life. Well, thank you
1: very much, and uh, God bless you and and those who are listening. It's very good to talk to you again.
0: Thank you. God bless you, my friend.